0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to Breaking the Cycle. At this point, maybe you're thinking, all right, dude, you've been talking a lot about industrial pollution, and we totally get that it's bad and that it's contributing to climate change and hurting people's health. But how bad is the pollution problem? And how has it gotten so bad? And how do these emissions actually happen? Well, first, let me ask you this Have you ever driven past an oil and gas rig? or a big plant or refinery and wondered, what the heck is all that metal crap and what's going on inside there? Or have you ever noticed at these big refineries or plants or oil patches out west, have you ever noticed these huge flames from these big metal towers, sometimes followed by huge black clouds of smoke? That's a flare burning off methane. And that's just the pollution that's visible. When methane gas is released but not burned, this is called venting. And these emissions are invisible and odorless, making them hard to detect. And the kicker with venting and flaring is those are intentional industry operations. They're technically supposed to happen. But there's another major issue, which is abandoned and orphaned oil and gas wells, which are littered across New Mexico, Texas, and Louisiana. In fact, there are about 100,000 wells in New Mexico and Texas, which actually leak a ton of methane emissions. And our regulatory agencies aren't doing much about it. So to dive deeper into these methane issues, we're speaking with Miguel Escoto, a West Texas field researcher with Earthworks, and Cyrus Reed, the conservation director for the Lone Star chapter of Sierra Club. Miguel, a Texan born and raised, spends a lot of time in the Permian Basin and is going to walk us through the realities on the ground. We'll follow up with a conversation with Cyrus about the efforts to properly regulate venting and flaring and well closure as well as federal support for closing the wells. I'm your host, Courtney Nakian, recording in Bulbancha, also known as New Orleans, on the ancestral lands of the Homa, Chitimacha, Choctaw, Ishak, and Biloxi people.
1: My name is Miguel
0: Escoto.
1: I was born and raised in the borderland community of El Paso, Texas and Ciudad Juarez. For the past two years, I have been working with Earthworks as part of the field team, which goes out into the oil fields, including the Permian Basin oil field and the Eagle Ford oil field. Studying the industry, we document the emissions that they have. We use that documentation to try to pressure the state government, the TCQ, and the Railroad Commission to enforce existing regulation to reduce emissions. But we also use that documentation and that study to sound the alarm to broader public about what's going on in these oil fields, which I can talk a little bit more about.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Um, because you know this podcast is about the Permian to Gulf Coast frack cycle and in some circles people refer to the Permian as a climate bomb so could you explain to us what that means and maybe start with an overview of um, the Permian what are production levels nowadays compared to like pre-COVID levels for example.
1: Sure the Permian climate bomb is it's not an exaggeration because it's A huge problem, a huge threat for the climate crisis. So the Permian Basin is basically the fracking epicenter of the United States. Here we have about 40% of United States oil supply, and it seems like every administration beats the previous administration as to how much oil and gas is being produced from the Permian Basin. So Right now, under the Biden administration, the Permian is producing more oil than during the Trump administration. And Trump was producing more oil and gas than during the Obama administration. And Obama, there was more production than during the Bush administration. So we see here a skyrocketing of production that has not ended. Part of the reason why the Permian is was able to unleash this level of pumping oil and gas from the ground was because of what was happening in the Gulf. So during the Obama administration, they lifted a decades long ban on exporting crude oil. What that did is that it unleashed a level of oil and gas that we hadn't seen it was able to reach its full potential. So right now, the Permian in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico, right here, we now have about 5.4 million barrels of oil being produced per day. So try to imagine 5.4 million barrels of anything per day. That, that is a crisis because science is telling us we need to stop producing oil and gas now. And we are going the wrong direction. One of the funniest things that we notice here is how conservatives and the Republican Party have fake outrage at Biden. Biden, how dare you? How dare you stop and limit America's great oil and gas potential? Well, if you look at the numbers, Biden is beating Trump. He's making him look like a chump. Like it it really is. Incredible when you look at the numbers, how bad we are, how bad the current situation is, and a lot of this conservative outrage is false, it's fake. So, that relates to the broader supply chain of the Gulf because what happens is a vicious cycle of toxicity, it's a feedback loop. So, the more drilling that is happening from the Permian Basin, the more. The fossil fuel industry downstream in the Gulf can say, hey, let's build these export facilities to increase capacity and ship this oil and gas to the rest of the world. So the more drilling, the more export capacity, the more export capacity, the more that on the upstream side, oil and gas drillers can actually drill more. And so that leads again to more export, to more drilling to more export, to more drilling, et cetera. It's a toxic feedback loop that is not going to end unless we do something about it.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, which is precisely why we call this podcast Breaking the Cycle, because it is definitely a loop that's on repeat. Um, And a part of that cycle are two issues that happen in the Permian Basin that maybe not everybody is so aware of, Um, venting and flaring and and orphaned wells. And the reason for grouping those together is that there are some state and federal government actions that might help address them. With you, let's focus on venting and flaring. And anyone who's driven through the Permian, or even in the Gulf Coast in some cases, is familiar with flares. For those listening who who don't know, um, flares are giant flames burning off unwanted gas. And as far as I know, it's a necessary, technically necessary thing to do so to prevent explosions. Um, it's still a very dangerous thing that releases a bunch of emissions. So it's a disturbing sight and uh, to see, and you know the roar of the flares can be pretty powerful. Can you explain what's going on with the flares? What is venting? Why do companies flare gas, and why should we be worried about it?
1: Sure. So venting and flaring, it's a very big problem, but it is only a symptom of the larger disease of fossil fuel production why is flaring even a thing? The production of oil and gas is a complicated process. It's messy. It is dirty. But if we focus specifically on the Permian Basin, their their main focus is on extracting oil. And the industry, the economy there has focused on oil as opposed to gas, which fluctuates in prices. When fracking to extract oil from the ground, operators will come across excess gas. So they have various options as to how to manage this. One option is they can ship it to market so that it can be used for pipelines uh, to refine it. The second thing that they can do with this excess gas is they can flare it. Basically, if you haven't seen this, imagine being in a West Texas desert, you see a pipe sticking up from the ground, And you see a massive flame that is just roaring from this stick in the ground. What they do is they combust the gas, which would reduce the amount of greenhouse gases being released into the atmosphere. That's what they're designed to do. They look scary. They look horrifying, which they are. But technically, they're in place to reduce emissions. However, there's a third thing that can happen with this excess gas, which is vented. They can just straight up let the emissions get dumped into the atmosphere and it is unmitigated. There's no control technology and it is just being blasted into the atmosphere. This isn't rare. We at Earthworks, we use an optical gas imaging camera to point at oil and gas sites and see what is happening. We're able to see otherwise invisible methane and VOC emissions. A lot of the times we go up to sites, we point the camera to this stick that's pointing up from the ground. With the naked eye, you don't see anything, but you point the camera and you see this blasting plume. And that is unmitigated methane being dumped into the atmosphere. That is venting. It's a huge problem. So flaring and venting is a huge part of how oil and gas can exist without exploding. So a lot of these gases are volatile. If they are not managed, it will blow up the entire system. And that's a lot of the excuse that the oil and gas industry makes. Um, So why should we be concerned? Two basic categories for this, health and climate. Flaring does not eliminate pollution. It only reduces it when it's operating at its perfect peak performance, when it's operating immaculately. It doesn't eliminate pollution; it just reduces it. So, flaring can result in health problems for people living near the the flames because they release volatile organic compounds like benzene, which causes cancer. Uh, studies demonstrate that pregnant women who live near flares have as much as 50 percent greater chance of resulting in premature birth. Studies also demonstrate that living in proximity to Flares is linked to eye, nose, throat irritation, respiratory problems, nausea, headaches, dizziness. Um, It's a huge problem for health if you're living next to a flare. Um, We should also be concerned because of the climate. If flares work perfectly and impeccably, they don't eliminate emissions, they only reduce it. And so flares operating exactly as intended still release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. According to the Global Carbon Project, properly combusted flaring is responsible for 0.6% of all human-driven fossil carbon dioxide emissions. That number might seem small, but it is a calculation of all human-related carbon dioxide emissions, so it's still substantial. However, there's also such a thing as a flare that is not operating as it should. Pretty common to see out here. If you're driving through the the oil fields, you see here that a flare can be lit. So there's still a flame coming out of the pipe that's sticking out of the ground. But these flares have a smoky plume. There's a black smoke trailing off of it. And this is a improperly lit flare, it's malfunctioning. And when you see this, there is black carbon being emitted. So black carbon is huge. It's a huge greenhouse gas. It's very dangerous for the climate. It's responsible for 15% to 30% of global climate change. So, yes, flaring is better than venting, but flaring is not a win. There's still problems because of it, and as we can see, the state government has just refused to regulate properly.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I didn't actually realize that um, the the flares with the big black was um, an improperly managed flare.
1: That is not supposed to happen.
0: I don't know. I feel like growing up around industry, that's just something I saw a lot. I mean, it was always like concerning, but you, you know, you just kind of move on.
1: Well, right now that's, that is what is in vogue for the industry. It's their last ditch effort to maintain their industry. They know that uh, the general public is sick and tired of their pollution. They know that the general public wants to transition to renewable energy. So yeah, this carbon capture schemes and their hydrogen schemes are false solutions. There are ways to keep them making profits while nothing fundamentally changing. And we have to really stand up against that.
0: Yeah, definitely. So for extra clarity, I was wondering, companies will uh, justify venting or flaring because it's required, otherwise it's dangerous and explosive. So I'm wondering, you know, Texas actually has a law banning the waste of natural gas resources like gas. Um, So how do companies get around that um, prohibition? Is it through that same argument?
1: Loopholes, 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 loopholes. That's they have a menu of loopholes that they can use at their discretion. They're really spoiled if you think about it. So one of the main things they have is affirmative defense loophole which means that virtually anything can be justified by them saying that pollution event that you saw, which harmed you, that's part of our shutdown startup maintenance or malfunction. Basically, everything they can just blanket as one of those excuses. And uh, data from Environment Texas found that 97% of enforcement hearings on potential Clean Air Act violations they cited this provision, this excuse to say it was part of startup shutdown maintenance or malfunction. So basically the the exemption has eaten the rule, right? That's one of the major things. Another way that the industry just gets away with this is no one looks, no one is counting for the government. It's just out of sight, therefore out of mind. I don't count it, therefore it doesn't exist. Um, I want to bring up two important Earthworks reports that demonstrate this because it might sound outrageous, inflammatory for me to say this, but no, it's it's based on what they are doing. So, one report uh, called "Flaring in Texas: A Comprehensive Government Failure." It's a report that found that 69 to 84% of Texas methane flares are unpermitted, but they're still blasting. Another important report is called Fatal Vapors, how Texas oil and gas regulators cause avoidable deaths. Again, by Jack McDonald and Sharon Wilson. So here, this was an analysis of another really important pollutant that oil and gas dumps into the air, which is H2S, hydrogen sulfide. Very dangerous, just a byproduct of the system, right? So an analysis of over 19,000 wells in the Railroad Commission, in the Permian, found that over 10,000 wells, 51% of these wells, did not file their required permits to assess and inform the state of the danger their well poses. Those are just two quick facts that demonstrate that the government is just not looking. It's the Wild West, no one's looking. We can also see this in the amount of inspectors and the few inspections that actually occur. So the Texas Railroad Commission, which regulates oil and gas, not railroads, right? So they aspire to inspect facilities once every five years. There's only one inspector for every 1,600 oil and gas facilities. According to their system, it's humanly impossible for there to be inspectors on the ground. Why? Because they've made a decision to Say, oh, we're gonna inspect it once every five years. Last thing I can go on forever about how they don't do this correctly, but last thing I'll mention is leak detection and repair inspection. So LDAR inspections. This is a major enforcement mechanism for keeping these oil and gas sites accountable, monitored. So under the EPA, what is considered really progressive and aggressive monitoring is. You have LDAR inspections four times a year, quarterly. That's wildly insufficient. It's almost an insult for them to say four times out of the entire year, we're going to open our eyes. Um, I want to share a quick anecdote here that my colleague, Sharon Wilson, who's senior field advocate, so she was at a oil and gas site, found emissions from an operator, Diamondback. She found emissions. She filed the complaint. Did the civic duty, and so Diamondback, the operator, their response to the submissions was to say, "Oh, TCQ, please ignore this 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 doesn't matter. Why? Because we passed our LDAR test two days prior. So we're good for the remaining three months. We're good. What you saw, the video of the pollution, it just doesn't count because we already passed our inspection. And the TCQ accepted that. They said, "You're right, Diamondback. This was totally not pollution. And so the only adequate regulation inspection would be 24-hour opening your eyes, right? Otherwise, it's pointless. When, when Sharon and I go out into the field and we go up to a site, we point the OGI camera to it, and we don't see anything happening. We don't see pollution. Our joke is that we're 30 minutes too late because if you go to a site on a Monday at 9 a.m., that same day in the evening, it can be wildly different. That's how the state just allows this to happen—loopholes and not checking.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, I like calling them spoiled. I'm sure that they wouldn't want to hear that because they always oh act like they're gosh. under attack. They're,
1: <laughs> they're so spoiled, and then and then Biden's in the office, and they're like, "Boo hoo for us! Boo hoo, we don't get <laughs> we don't get treated specially." And we're, when it's like. Dude, look at the amount of oil and gas that you're pumping out of the ground. You've never had it better.
0: Since you mentioned earlier about like flares, you know, it's normally odorless or venting is mostly invisible and odorless gas but I'm wondering whenever you are out in the fields, if you are noticing like transmission lines leak badly um, in addition to flaring and venting.
1: Almost every part of the oil and gas production process has emissions. This includes the, the tanks where they store liquids. This includes flares, obviously. It includes compressor stations. It includes all of these different processes from when the hole is being drilled in the ground, all the way to when it's when gas is being used for a power plant. Like almost every single part of this process has emissions. That's part of the problem. But yeah, one of the main conclusions from studying the oil fields that Earthworks has determined is that if you produce oil and gas, you will pollute. There's no if ands, or buts. So that's why the main message here, the most consequential legislation we can pass is stop producing, keep it in the ground. Some other conclusions that we have identified is that all these emissions are not the bug in the design. They are the feature because of how necessary releases are in their system. Here, I'd like to make a very important Distinction between leaks and releases. Leaks are pretty small scaled, they're accidental usually, and um they account for only 8% roughly of the pollution. But what is more common, what we see most, is releases. These pressure releases happen throughout the infrastructure that produces um, and transports the gas. These are permitted, but there's no metering to ensure that the releases stay within the permit. So a lot of this is just self-reported guesstimates by petroleum engineers in the companies. Here's an example. If we go to a compressor station, the purpose of compressor stations, the compressors are to compress the gas and push it down the pipeline, right? But the gas has to be at the same pressure as the pipeline. What we often see is that uh, the compressors release these massive plumes of uncombusted gas routinely. Why? Because it's a fragile, delicate system that has to be well calibrated and it costs a lot of money for them to do it. So they just don't do it. Another quick example of these releases are blowdowns. Blowdowns are, for example, again, you look at a compressor station at a pipeline upstream of that pipeline. They want to do maintenance. They want to do something in the pipeline to fix it, to improve it, whatever. What happens to all of the gas that's coming down that pipeline? What they do is a blowdown. They just release it into the atmosphere. They just let it be dumped into the sky. And so these are essential, fundamental, intrinsic parts of the process that demonstrate to us that the industry is too dirty to allow to continue.
0: It's something that, well, I'll use the word normalize a lot, but it's been normalized. But whenever you think about it, it's like, it's really not cool. It's not cool to like, oh. let this happen to our air and to our, to our bodies. Yeah, because like, you know, like you said earlier, there's emissions at every point of a fracking of this part of the industry. And similarly, we had a conversation with two health professionals in our previous episode who said something related in that um at every point of you know this industry of fracking there are health ramifications and there's really no way good way to do oil and gas mm-hmm. so um i'm wondering you know how do people on the ground if you if you're if you know uh, how do people on the ground feel about um venting and flaring how aware are they of it in the Permian, for example and are they concerned are they aware of the health impacts what's like the 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 on-the-ground public opinion or even knowledge that they have?
1: Yeah, well, it's complicated because there is a toxic relationship that happens between Permian Basin working class and the oil and gas industry. It's a complicated relationship. It's difficult for a lot of people to condemn the entire industry. Why? Because they are either a part of it It has paid for their kids' food on the table. It has sent them to college. It is something that's been in the generations throughout. But without a doubt, the human health impact that the industry has burdened on to the Permian Basin community is basically a human rights violation, is horrible, because let me give you another statistic here about how much volatile organic compounds VOC emissions are being produced here locally. So, um as I mentioned, VOCs are a byproduct of the production of oil and gas. It's carcinogenic, it causes cancer, it's very dangerous for health. In the Permian region, there is as much pollution of VOCs than all of Houston and Dallas Fort Worth combined. Those of us familiar with Texas, think about how ridiculous that sounds. So, we're we're talking about the Permian population, which is about 400,000 people, maybe say 500,000 people. There is as much and more pollution there than all of Dallas Fort Worth and Houston, which collectively is about 10 million people. So, the per capita pollution is just Wild. The workers that are in the industry are also being hurt disproportionately. We have OGI videos with this camera pointing at workers on catwalks of tanks doing their maintenance, where the workers don't have protective equipment. They just have plumes, storms of gas blasting into their face. Um, A lot of workers in this industry die. It is an extremely dangerous position, but that's what happens when you have a community under hostage where you say you either work with this industry or you don't have anything. Yeah, don't believe the industry when they say that we as an industry all are happy about this because the workers who are actually on the ground turning levers, laying down the pipelines are not exposed the same way as executives in Houston and Wall Street are exposed, right? It's a complex issue, but at the end of the day, people deserve to live without cancer in the air. It's that simple. And I don't care if you as as a industry executive are going to make less profit. I don't care about that. There are other alternatives than living in this atmosphere that kills you.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. A lot of what you're saying, you know, really rings true to other parts of the fracking cycle, including in the Gulf, where people are equally, I think, prideful in, their, in the work and in the oil and gas industry for very similar reasons. But also similarly, there are people who are like, this industry is harming us. And at what point do we say that we, we can't take anymore? But so uh, moving on from venting and flaring, I would like to switch to um, abandoned and orphaned wells. Um, if you could explain what they are and why we should care. So can you tell me also what happens when wells aren't closed properly?
1: Sure. So the best way to think of this issue is if you're an operator, once you decide to drill a well, that is a eternal process. I'm not exaggerating. The drilling of a well is something that you can't just do and then bounce because that well is fundamentally tied to the water sources. Of that entire region. So you are placing toxic water chemicals into close proximity of these reservoirs, of these water resources that are going to sustain these communities, hopefully, for generations to come, right? So the crisis, the phenomena of abandoned wells happened. The the original sin, basically, is allowing these drilling companies to make profits by extracting oil and gas, and then the state telling these operators, it's okay if you can't pay for the eternal process of drilling. It's okay, it's all right. Once you lose your productivity, once you lose your peak productivity, you as an operator, you can just sell it off to lower tier companies until eventually it's bankrupt and eventually the state has to pick up the tab. And so it is a crisis of power dynamics Because, yeah, in a a just world, if you are the government, you tell the operator, okay, sure, you can drill that well, but you have to be damn sure that you're going to be able to maintain it to plug it forever. And I say forever because once you plug in a well, that's not it. You also have to keep monitoring the site. Why? Because underground, these oil fields, is chaos. There is skyrocketing seismic activity because of fracking, and the actual process of fracking itself causes chaos underground, which leads to movement, which leads to casing to break, which leads to previously perfectly plugged wells breaking and allowing toxic chemicals to Penetrate into water resources. So that is the crisis. Basically, the Permian and other oil fields are facing down the barrel of a water crisis. Like every single well is a ticking time bomb of regional water contamination.
0: Yikes. Yeah, that's all kinds of messed up. I mean, I know that you mentioned this a bit earlier um, about federal agencies and our governments are sort of just. Okay with that. So is, um, I guess it's the Railroad Commission of Texas. They would be the the agency responsible for regulating or ensuring that these wells are closed and maintained properly. Is that relationship so fraught that this is how companies are able to get away with leaky wells or what have you? The way
1: we think of both the TCQ and the Railroad Commission, their job is not to regulate oil and gas. Their job is to justify them. If they were an actual regulator, they would have to occasionally stand up to these companies and say, you can't do this because I'm representing the public. That is long gone in those two agencies. Those two agencies are now lobbying wings of the oil and gas industry. So if we want to fix this issue, there's going to be, we're going to need a radical transformation of those agencies. We're going to need the EPA to step in. Even the EPA needs to be radically transformed, right? But yeah, it is it is unacceptable for the government to allow corporations to have a water crisis of this level in the region. And I'll share the story of uh, Ashley Watts uh, ranch owner she's a ranch owner in texas that will go as far as to say quote i now feel confident that chevron killed my mother i don't know if this land will be habitable when everything is done or when it will be and that's because of her story of how a well that chevron left in her ranch was starting to leak again and it has become a massive problem because that leak is seeping into water resources, and her mother died from a very, very rare form of cancer that in all likelihood was caused by by this contamination. And so it's a region-wide problem. It is an example of how this industry needs to go away. An and upside, if we can call it that, is that there needs to be work done in these Permian oil fields. There needs to be work done if we want the region to have drinkable water. I don't think that's an option. We need drinkable water. So there needs to be work done, plugging in and maintaining these wells. And that can be a form of boomtown communities to envision themselves in a just transition to renewable energy, to envision themselves in something like a Green New Deal because it won't look that much different for them. We're going to need people in trucks, going to these oil fields, maintaining and plugging wells pretty much forever. It's like radioactive nuclear waste. It's here with us forever. So we need to take care of it. And it's going to require a lot of jobs. And a lot of those jobs can come from the community itself. That being said, if we wanna get out of this hole, we have to stop digging. We have to stop drilling new wells because every well we drill, is a taking time bomb.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, the It's thinking about the, the job aspect that you just mentioned, um, especially as you said, it's like, you know, a 24-7 monitoring sort of ordeal and knowing just like, you know, if the boom and bust cycle of the fracking industry, you know, were to bust or just to, to leave, what would happen with to the communities there?
1: I mean, all of these geologists, all of these welders, all of the roughnecks, they have have a role to play in the just transition. We'd like to think of climate jobs as just installing rooftop solar. It's not only going to be that, it's also going to include naturalists and biologists that look at the Permian to restore the land, restore the damage that has been done to ensure the health of the wildlife, which in effect ensures our health. But it's a lot more feasible and tangible than maybe people might think.
0: Yeah. You know, this podcast, it looks at like the whole fracking cycle and you're in, having you on the show today helped hone in on the, the upstream part of the fracking cycle where the extraction happens. So how do these issues of venting and flaring and abandoned wells tie into the whole cycle? And when people talk about greenhouse gas emissions um, from export terminals and final use, they rarely consider you know, the upstream emissions. Um, and we keep asking regulators to consider them, but it doesn't really happen. Um, so can you just end with uh, why these upstream emissions are important and why we should take them more seriously? So
1: if you don't take upstream emissions seriously, you are fudging the numbers in favor of industry. You're just giving them a get out of jail free card. That's not just If regulators are doing that, we have to consider, wait, why are they bending over backwards to intentionally give the industry more credit? Um, Here are some numbers as to why. So um, there's this really good website called PermianClimateBomb.org that I encourage everyone here to check out that has a a lot more of the numbers to what I was saying and all of the sources, if you don't believe me. I'm quoting here from the report. It says, scientists studying methane emissions in the Permian Basin estimate that as much as 3.7 of gas production is being vented into the atmosphere. At this rate, methane emissions in the Permian Basin would emit over 9.5 billion tons of CO2 equivalent by 2050. Those emissions are just waste in the system. This would look like, If every day from 2021 to 2050, taking 50 standard mile-long trains of coal out into the desert, dumping the coal, and just burning it in a giant pile. This pile would be almost 2 million cubic feet of coal that would cover two New York City blocks, would be as tall as a giant sequoia tree, it would fill... 150 Olympic swimming pools, you get it. It is a lot of greenhouse gases being dumped into the atmosphere upstream. So you have to talk about it. And it also reminds us of the point of looking at the entire supply chain completely, because it is a feedback loop. A way we can destroy all of this is to just stop drilling, keep it in the ground. And We have to be very cognizant of how industry and their PR campaigns try to obfuscate that fact by focusing on other control technologies. And so the best legislation that's going to work, the best available control technology is keeping it in the ground. No more drilling. To get out of this hole, we need to stop digging
0: At this point, you are all pretty used to hearing from me, however, you haven't really heard too much from my co-worker Roddy Hughes, who is a campaign representative for the Beyond Dirty Fuels campaign at Sierra Club for the Permian Basin and Gulf Coast. He is also the producer for this podcast, so he is a huge asset to the show, and for this portion of the episode, Roddy will be interviewing Cyrus Reed who is the Conservation Director and Lead Lobbyist for the Texas Chapter at Sierra Club. And I had the pleasure of working really closely with Cyrus whenever I was the Communications Coordinator at the Texas Chapter a few years ago. So I can say with confidence that Cyrus is a very knowledgeable person about the Texas legislature and how it relates to oil and gas issues in Texas. Cyrus is really important to the environmental movement overall, but especially in Texas. So I hope you enjoy Roddy and Cyrus's conversation, which just provides more insight to abandoned wells, fracking, and the politics surrounding these issues in Texas.
2: My name is Cyrus Reed. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas. I work for the state chapter of the Sierra Club here in Texas, which is called the Lone Star Chapter. Wasn't born here, but been here 30 odd years and been working for the chapter since 2007. Uh, And I work on a lot of different issues as conservation director, but a lot of them do come down to energy, you know, where we get our energy from, where we get our electricity from, and some of the impacts on people's health and our habitats and communities and ultimately on our planet because of global warming.
3: We just had a long conversation with Miguel Escoto from uh, Earthworks about venting and flaring and abandoned wells in the Permian, and we wanted to talk to you about the lack of regulations and what needs to happen about uh, to better protect our communities and prevent more harmful greenhouse gas emissions. Um, to start, can you talk about some of the regulatory agencies, Railroad Commission, and their role in regulating oil and gas industry, especially venting and flaring? well closure sorry to cut
2: you off um it it gets complicated pretty fast and it's complicated because in texas we actually have two different state agencies that deal in some way with air pollution venting and flaring probably the most important is the railroad commission and you're probably thinking to yourself railroad commission what do railroads have to do with oil and gas production well absolutely nothing but the railroad commission was started, you know, 100 years ago as an agency that regulated railroads. They quickly became an agency that regulates mining and particularly oil and gas mining. The name uh in my view is is purposefully confusing to the public. So the public doesn't know who regulates oil and gas in Texas, but it is the railroad commission. It's composed of 3 elected commissioners, but their role is to grant the permits for oil wells and gas wells. And in Texas regulation under the Natural Resource Code, we have a basic, thou shalt not waste oil and gas in its production, which should mean that we don't allow, allow flaring and venting, except we do. And we do because as in all good regulations, there are lots of exceptions. So as an example, when you drill a well in Texas, you are allowed to vent all that gas and all the stuff that comes out of the earth for the first 10 days, that's allowed. Once you've formed the well and capped it and are starting to produce, you are allowed to apply for an exception to the Railroad Commission, which allows you to flare off that gas. So if you're an oil producer and aren't particularly interested in taking advantage of the gas that you're also producing, in Texas you can just flare it by applying for an exception to the Railroad Commission and they almost always grant them almost no matter what. And so I think between when the fracking boom really took off in say 2009 in that period up until recently, you know we had over 29,000 exceptions granted. Now all flaring's not created equal, you know you can Flare in a manner that destroys most of the gas, meaning that the methane, you're not getting much methane out into the atmosphere. Unfortunately, the experience on the ground, I'm sure Miguel talked about this, is a lot of those flares are improperly operating, or maybe they never applied for the permit and they're doing it anyway, or even worse, maybe they're just venting it directly. And we have plenty of evidence of that, including from the Railroad Commission itself when they've done enforcement actions. Lots of operators not following the law, and doing things badly. So that's that's Railroad Commission. Texas Commission on Environmental Quality is Texas's version of the EPA. Basically, it's our regulatory body that is supposed to protect us from air pollution, from water pollution, from land pollution. They also have a role to play because wells of a certain size are required to get air permits, Uh, but TCEQ. Doesn't have any specific regulations on methane. So any regulations we have on Texas regarding methane pollution really only come from the federal government and whatever EPA is requiring. And um back when uh Obama was president, the EPA did for the first time start to regulate methane, but it was in a very limited fashion. It only covered, New wells. So both in 2012 and 2016, there were some air quality regulations that were put forth by the EPA that Sierra Club and others supported. very limited only on new wells, really only focused on the well itself, not associated equipment. And those did require some controls and some monitoring of methane pollution. Uh, when when Trump came in office, he immediately put those rules on hold. There were multiple, you know, regulatory processes and lawsuits. At the end of the day, um, those regulations are still on the books. But now with Biden in office, we do have a real opportunity to expand those regulations. The Biden administration has publicly said we are going to take action on methane pollution. They put out an initial proposal. We're still waiting for a final proposal. Those regulations are really important because for the first time, they would regulate not only new wells, oil wells and gas wells, they would also regulate a lot of the associated equipment, including the transmission, some of those pipelines that's that's ultimately carrying oil and gas to wherever it's going. And so those would be incredibly beneficial, especially in states like Texas, where our regulators do such a poor job regulating air emissions. So we we are uh, anxiously awaiting for the proposal to drop and we're anxiously waiting to see what's in that proposal. It's very, very, very important that it covers all oil and gas wells. So not just the high producers, because frankly, a lot of the high producers have less problem than the low production wells. The low production wells is where we see a lot of these problems. Why? Because the producers... You know, they're just getting a little oil out of the ground. They don't want to spend a lot of money, so they let stuff vent and flare or fugitive emissions leak from their equipment. Um, so it's really important that it cover that. It's important that I include community monitoring, so communities can look for themselves at the emissions that might be impacting them. And it's incredibly important that we we require pneumatic devices, make sure there are no bleed, nothing can get out of them. And those are, are three things that are are uh, incredibly important to, to the Sierra Club and many other organizations that are working on this.
3: Really, really interesting. But before I ask you about air monitoring and in, in, in that, I why are why are we wasting so much gas? Why venting and flaring? Um the narrative right now is that you know, with the, the Ukraine war, that Europe needs gas. And you know, we're building all these LNG export terminals on the Gulf Coast. Why would we be wasting so much gas in the Permian?
2: I'll go back to the corporations that produce oil and gas. Oftentimes, they might be interested only in the oil because, uh, you know, depending on the price, it's more valuable. And so it may be in their economic interest to not invest to capture that gas and instead let it flare a vent. So that's one. And then two would be just politically. At least in Texas, oil and gas has an outsized role in influencing public policy in Texas. Why do I say that? Look at the railroad commissioners who regulate oil and gas and who's funding them. It tends to be the oil and gas industry. And when you have associations, you know, whatever TexOGA, Texas Oil and Gas Association, uh, there's a Permian Basin Association, there's um, an independent producers group as well they tend to go to the lowest common denominator. If you remember your basic algebra, or is that algebra, whatever that math is, you have kids. Um, They are not looking at what the leading industry is doing in terms of cleanliness. They're going to represent the low producers, anybody who's not really interested in investing more to to make the production process cleaner. And so they're influencing folks like the commissioners, folks like the governor who appoints the commissioners to the TCQ and influencing the legislature. We have tried. We have tried at the legislature to get some basic methane controls in Texas. We've had study bills. We've had regulatory bills. We've had bills that said, let's give the industry some time. Thou shall not flare except for emergencies after 2025. We didn't even get a hearing. Why is that? Because our ideas were bad? no because the oil and gas industry went to the chair of those committees and said you will not have a hearing on this issue we do not want to hear about it it's not in our interest so it's economic and it's political but it ultimately gets back to the power of of the industry in texas and not wanting to move forward doesn't mean there aren't individual companies who aren't doing things they are it just means as a whole the industry is not interested in doing this
3: yeah, fascinating. Just for the record, we outsource all math tutoring, so I'm not involved in the math education of my children. Really interesting. Um, let's do talk for a second about about air monitoring in the Permian, and you know, with all the venting and flaring that's going on out there, surely TCQ, EPA, whoever has got just massive amounts of air monitorings to make sure that. Community members and and people out there are not exposed to too much, and that we're limiting the amount of greenhouse gas emissions in the region. Isn't that true, Cyrus Reed?
2: Absolutely not. Under the Federal Clean Air Act, TCQ is required to have a five year monitoring plan and also do an update each year on their basic, you know, how they're monitoring air pollution in different areas of the state. And I'll say in some of our urban areas, Houston, Dallas, Beaumont, Port Arthur. We have some pretty good basic monitoring, uh, especially for ozone pollution, which is ground level smog. There is not a single ozone monitor anywhere in West Texas. So, not in Midland, not in Odessa, not in Lubbock, not in Andrews County, not in Big Spring, none. The public interest groups for years have been fighting with CCQ that. The requirements are met because Midland Odessa is becoming a more urbanized, lots of population growth, so it meets the criteria for having ozone monitors. None. Another issue: SO2 sulfur dioxide emissions. You know, when you have fossil fuels with high sulfur content and you burn it, you're going to get sulfur dioxide, and then as well as you know, gas processing and other processes out there. Um, There is one. (laughs) sulfur dioxide monitoring in big spring which is far away from midland odessa and think about all those trucks all those old diesel trucks going back and forth taking water or oil and gas all over the permian basin there is no particulate matter monitoring in the permian basin that is all tcq not advocating for the money to do that, even if the community is advocating for it. Why? If you don't monitor and see there's a pollution problem, then you don't have to regulate. So is the Permian Basin busting through health-based standards for sulfur dioxide and ozone? I think absolutely it is, having been out there a lot. I think it is. We don't know because we don't have the monitoring out there and groups like eip have done lots of analysis based upon pollution from permits particularly on sulfur dioxide actually showing that the region likely does bust through um, sulfur dioxide health-based standards but again we don't have the monitors out there to prove it Um, and frankly epa Whether it's under a Democratic administration or Republican administration, they tend not to step into Texas's business. So they have never stepped in and required this. We're going to be asking them again. It's outlandish. I was at a, a hearing of the Environmental Regulation Committee in Odessa. The chair is from Odessa. They had invited testimony after invited testimony saying, we don't have a problem out here with air pollution. Well, that's easy to say when you don't monitor for it. They clearly do, you know, obviously we've had deaths there as well from hydrogen sulfide workers getting killed from high levels of hydrogen sulfide, which we don't regulate very well in Texas. So there are air pollution problems out there. We're just not monitoring for it.
3: EIP is the Environmental Integrity Project. So just Yeah,
2: they've done a great study. Uh, They did a great study a few years back on the problem of sulfur dioxide pollution in West Texas and the need for controls and monitoring.
3: Fascinating. A lot of your work is with the Texas legislature, Um, and I've followed you through the last session and heard about your years of of hard work there. A lot of our meetings, you're, you're actually calling in from some random office at the legislature wearing your suit. Um, we do have Texas legislature convenes every couple of years. And right. um, and we have a, a new session starting early next year. Are there any bills, any priorities that you think have a chance of moving through the legislature that might impact flaring, inventing and other some of these other air quality issues? What, what are some of your priorities or approaches for this upcoming session?
2: Yeah, I'll say um, if I were to make a bet, I have a better chance of getting the Biden administration to do strong methane regulations than I do to get anything approved by the Texas House, the Texas Senate, and signed by the governor, whoever the governor is. Ultimately, um, it's a much harder road to get something through the legislature. That being said, I do think there's some opportunity to do something on flaring because it's been such an issue because industry itself has said we're committed to flare less so there's sort of a narrative in texas that industry wants to do something on flaring they've created a a methane coalition um but i do think a bill that would phase out the use of flaring in the next few years has some potential especially if it's combined with um, we have a program called the Texas Emission Reduction Plan, which has pots of money. Maybe if it's combined with some money to help industry, you know, monitor, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's some potential to do that. The other area where I'd say I feel like there's some potential to do something is on reform of our well plugging and bonding programs. In Texas, we have a lot of experience plugging wells; been doing it for years. We have a well-established program that does plug orphaned wells. And we have a pot of money to do that, but we're not keeping up with the growth. So every year the legislature gives some money to the railroad commission from these funding sources to plug wells. It's about a thousand wells a year, which sounds like a lot, except we've got we've got a lot of wells. And so Right now, there's about 8,000 wells on the list that have already been approved to be um, cemented and capped, but there's a lot more wells behind it. So there's a process to get a well from being no longer producing to where it's considered abandoned, to where it's considered orphaned. And so hopefully a lot of those wells, the industry will do what they're supposed to do and plug their own wells. That's actually what's supposed to happen, right, is they're required to do that but if they go belly up or jump town or leave out the back door we the public are left with those orphaned wells and so we need to take advantage of this new pot of federal money that's available but we also need to reform our system in a couple of ways one is we have not changed our bonding requirements since i believe 1989 that seems like yesterday to me but it's actually a long time ago <laughs> um and so the amount that oil and gas companies are required to put up as financial assurance to make sure they're plugged their wells is only 15 to 16 percent of the actual cost of plugging the wells. Why? Because back in 1989, it was a lot cheaper, and we now know a lot more, and it's, it's frankly more complicated today to plug these wells. There's Different kinds of wells, horizontal drilling, vertical drilling, you know, there's the, these different factors that make it more difficult. Um, so we need to update those standards. We need to look at the bonding levels and also the process for how a well goes from a producing to non producing to abandoned to orphaned. Because what's happening is the railroad commission keeps giving these extensions to um, low producing wells. So they're not getting on the list, and then companies go belly up, and then they leave us with that mess. We need to stop those extensions and get a well into the process sooner rather than later, because otherwise we're left uh, holding the bag.
3: So thank you for getting into that. I was I was actually going to move to abandoned wells and orphan wells next. You actually answered a lot of the things I wanted to to talk about, but I, I do want to back up for a second. Like how it's not hard to understand why a company would want to just abandon their well, right? Because it costs money to, to close these things. And so can you talk a little bit more about like what is the process? How do one of these companies go from digging a well, extracting their fossil fuels to that well then being abandoned and, and closed? Or is there a process where they, they actually hand them off to other companies, sell them? Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's complicated, but um... When you get a permit with the railroad commission to dig a well, whether it's exploratory or actually production, you are required to put up some financial assurance, some bonding provisions. Again, they are very, very, very low and modest. Um, when the well stops producing and is no longer operating, they are supposed to let the railroad commission know okay, this well is now you know no longer operating and there's supposed to be a period in which they plug that well but as i mentioned what frequently happens is the company will file for an extension and say well it's low producing and it's not active right now but i might want to restart it you know a year from now so i'm i'm not i'm not going to do the full plugging um what often happens particularly actually with smaller companies there's a lot of, you know, mergers and acquisitions and people buying out wells. So somebody may purchase these wells or a fly by night company may purchase some and say, Oh, I have a new technology. I'm gonna restart, you know, I'm gonna reinject these wells and, and restart them. Maybe that company then goes belly up or leaves and we can't find them. And meanwhile, there's a there's a well that's been abandoned, not yet declared orphaned. And so there's a, you know, there's a process with enforcement and with the attorney general's office, where they're trying to find these people, take them to court, get them to plug the well, but sometimes it doesn't work out. But again, part of the problem is the policy we have of continually extending the time that companies have to plug these wells, sort of giving them a grace period. Particularly in a volatile industry like fossil fuels, oil and gas, we, the people can be left with those wells eventually. I don't know if I explained it well, but
3: uh, No, you're great. That, that, was, yeah. that was great. One more, one more question about the, the legislature. You, you just mentioned we the people." W- what role can people take in the legislative work in impacting state policy? Um, you know, if, if you're a, a mom or, or a dad, worry about your kids out in Odessa, Midland what can you do to get involved in that legislative process and influence some of these these policies?
2: Yeah, I think the first thing is, even though, as I said before, industries, companies, oil and gas companies, other industries, electric utilities, do have a lot of power at the legislature. Why? It's in their economic interests. They hire lobbyists. They give campaign contributions. That doesn't mean that the people can't also influence what happens with the legislature. So I, I'd say the, the most important thing is to form a relationship, right? So if you're in Odessa, you should probably get to know the staff and your representative, find out who your representative is. Uh, you can go to the main capital website in Texas and find out who represents you, uh, who's your senator, who, who's your representative. Call them, schedule a meeting, get to know them. Then I would say we are more powerful together, as my CR Club t-shirt says, powerful together. So working with actual organizations that have hired staff like myself, but Earthworks other organizations, Commission Shift, you know, there people are getting paid to, to work on these issues, I think is really important. Becoming a member of those organizations, working with them, volunteering is a great way to try to influence the legislature. And then you know as an example other groups do this too lone star chapter we will have you know webinars and trainings uh coming up soon on the legislative session how to get involved and how to follow the bills that that are of importance in our case to the to the environment and climate change so we will do a lot of that work so i would encourage people to get involved locally but also with statewide organizations any person can send written comments to legislators and legislative committees. The Texas House actually has a way that you can comment on any bill that has a hearing in a written way. And then if you have the wherewithal to get to Austin, Texas and get to a public hearing, it is open to the public. Now, warning, sometimes you can go to a hearing that's scheduled to begin at 9 a.m., they don't get to your bill they go to the house floor for 12 hours they come back at 1 a.m. so you may need to have some good travel plans because uh they may not get to you until late in the evening put it that way and that's again why a lot that's why all the major industry have hired lobbyists that's why Sierra Club has myself and some others you really need to be nearby and be flexible to sometimes to make comments but you can certainly form a relationship with your a representative or state senator, and start to talk to them about your priorities and then work with statewide organizations to see that those priorities get done.
3: So, what you're saying is if you intend to participate in one of these hearings, you need to pack an extra lunch.
2: Correct, because the Capitol cafeteria doesn't have very good food and it's really expensive. <laughs>
0: After these interviews, I keep hearing a phrase from Kaylee Shoup, a New Mexico-based Permian organizer that we actually interviewed in the first episode. She said, we have to solve the Permian problem in order to address climate change in this country. It seems like a daunting problem, and don't get me wrong, it's an enormous issue that's deeply woven into the political landscape of these oil and gas states. But there's lots of opportunities to get involved and tell your state regulators and politicians that this is unacceptable. Keep up with the Lone Star chapter and with Earthworks, and even a new nonprofit, Commission Shift, which focuses on reforming the Railroad Commission of Texas to actually get it to do its job and to help us solve the Permian problem.
3: Wasn't that a mighty chill? Wasn't that a mighty
0: chill? Shout out to the trusty podcast crew Roddy Hughes, the producer of this podcast, Thomas Walsh, our editor. Natalie McClendon, our project manager, and of course, our friendly musical cowpoke, Pearlie Gates, for her music. See y'all next time. Day was
1: not a chill, Just a warning Was a mighty
3: chill